0: Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 35, Au Pair, describing more details about electrons, quantum mechanics, and chemistry. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash thehistoryofchemistry. We have already heard about Niels Bohr and his revolutionary idea that electrons occupy specific circular shells around electrons, and that when electrons gain a specific amount of energy by absorbing a photon, they jump up from an inner shell to an outer shell. The shell's levels are described by a quantum number. Scientists call this quantum number the principal quantum number, whose symbol is lowercase n. When electrons lose a specific amount of energy, they fall from an outer shell to an inner shell and simultaneously emit a photon of that energy. With this idea, spectroscopists could immediately By how substances absorbed and emitted light, know exactly what those energy levels are. Hydrogen atoms and hydrogen like ions spectra were explained well by some relatively easy mathematical formulas. And yet, other atoms and ions spectra didn't match the equations. In particular, those energy levels Bohr predicted were found upon closer examination to be composed of several energy levels each. So instead of one clear spectral line recorded, there were several nearby lines, and these lines were not predictable by Bohr's idea. There were some slight differences in energy between these levels. Arnold Sommerfeld, a German scientist, in 1916 adjusted Bohr's theory slightly to account for these spectral anomalies. Sommerfeld's model said that, instead of circular orbits, why not use elliptical orbits, something like planets actually have when moving around the Sun? Geometrically, an ellipse has two foci, and one of those foci is where the nucleus sits. Via quantum mechanics, only certain ellipses are allowed. The particular dimensions of an ellipse are denoted by two numbers, the length of the major axis, the long dimension, and the length of the minor axis, the short dimension. Therefore, you need two quantum numbers, not one, to describe the orbits of electrons around atoms. This second quantum number is called the secondary quantum number, whose symbol is lowercase l. It measures how long and thin, or the flatness, of the ellipse orbit. The new theory only allows L to vary from 0, 1, 2, up to 1 less than n. 0 means long and thin. Larger numbers mean more circular. So, for a shell with n equals 1, you can only have L equals 0 and one level in total. For n equals 2, you can have L equals 0 or 1 and two sublevels or orbits. For n equals 3, you can have l equals 0, 1, or 2, or 3 sublevels. We can continue the series without end, as the shells get larger, and the energy levels get more complicated. In fact, so far we have assumed that all these shells and sublevels are arranged in a single plane. But why should that be so? We can have orbits in other orientations, not just in a single plane. So, that introduces a third quantum number, designating the orientation of an electron orbit in three dimensions. The symbol is lowercase m, with a subscript lowercase l. Generally, I call this tertiary quantum number m sub l. For this quantum number, we use the model that an electron revolves around a nucleus in an orbit. Because it carries an electric charge... By electromagnetic theory, a moving charge generates its own magnetic field. Suppose you put this orbiting electron in an outside magnetic field, say, under influence of a big magnet. The orbiting electron will align itself so that the field it generates aligns with the external magnet's field. This is like when a compass aligns itself with the Earth pointing toward magnetic north. Therefore, we can call m sub l the magnetic quantum number. Sommerfeld's calculations revealed that only certain orientations of these electron orbits are possible via quantum mechanics. And these orientations depend on the secondary quantum number l. The number of orientations, or m sub l's, allowed is 2 times the value of l plus 1. So, let's assume a primary quantum number n equals 3, and a secondary quantum number l equals 2. The tertiary quantum number m sub l can have 2 times 2 plus 1, or 5 different orientations or values. They vary from minus 2, minus 1, 0, 1, to 2. What makes minus 2 different from 2? It's the same orientation but the electron revolves in the opposite direction around the nucleus. Spectroscopists can see this as a very fine splitting of spectral lines, which has the name Zeeman effect. But then spectroscopists noticed an even finer splitting of atomic spectral lines, different from a magnetic one. The Dutch physicists Uhlenbeck and Goudsmit offered a model in 1925 that explained even this tiny effect. Rather than just a static sphere, imagine the electron is spinning even while it's revolving around the nucleus, just as the Earth spins around its axis while revolving around the Sun. This spinning electron can have two directions. So a new quantum number was proposed called the spin quantum number. Its value is either plus one-half or minus one-half there is a very slight difference in energy between the two directions of spinning. So, in a single atom, we have four quantum numbers to consider for each electron in that atom. The calculations get complicated and impossible to handle really fast. While you can calculate exactly the motions of two particles, say one electron and one nucleus, Beyond this level, you cannot and must make some simplifications. Just as Uhlenbeck and Goldsmith proposed their fourth electron quantum number, scientists began to realize that quantum mechanics didn't just apply to photons, that is, particles of light the properties of electrons began to be interpreted as quantum mechanical as well. But what does this mean? A French physicist, Louis de Broglie, offered a hypothesis that electrons weren't tiny little spheres or dots. Instead, he suggested, with mathematical reasoning, that electrons really had much in common with photons. That is, electrons also had properties of waves while simultaneously having properties of matter. de Broglie combined various simple equations already known to give an equation relating mass and wavelength for a photon. That is, wavelength is Planck's constant divided by mass times the speed of light. He also said that an electron can be described in this way, or indeed any particle of matter. That means that electrons not only are particles, but have a wavelength depending on their velocity. Nucleons, too. Atoms, molecules, and even people have a wavelength. Mass, though, is inversely dependent on wavelength. So as we go up in mass, the wavelength rapidly gets smaller to become unmeasurably small for objects large enough to see quantum mechanics clearly gives some very strange predictions well outside the realm of so-called common sense. But back to our electron story. de Broglie predicted electrons have a wavelength, but do they really? Americans Davison and Germer in 1929 shot a beam of electrons, cathode rays, at a crystal of nickel metal trying to reflect it off the surface they recorded on photographic film a diffraction pattern proving that de Broglie was right. And simultaneously, George Thompson in England shot electron beams through very thin metal leaves, and he also saw a diffraction pattern. Matter definitely has wavelength, and they all won Nobel Prizes for their work. Fun factoid about George Thompson, he showed that electrons are waves, his father we already met, J.J. Thompson, who discovered that electrons are particles back in 1897. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. But it gets even weirder. The German physicist Heisenberg, at this time, invented an improved method of quantum mechanics. His view is that only things we can observe really matter. That is, what spectroscopists see when they view atoms, the energies of photons, light, that go in and come out of the atoms. Considering an electron as a sphere or dot or point is useless, and this feeds right into de Broglie's idea of electron waves. Where is a wave exactly? We cannot pin an electron down into a specific planar orbit, or any particular position at all. Therefore Bohr's and Sommerfeld's scheme of electron orbits fails. The more accurately you try to determine the electron's position, the less accurately you can determine its velocity or momentum. The uncertainty is about the size of Planck's constant. We now call it Heisenberg's Uncertainty Principle. It's a fundamental law of nature. By 1926, Schrodinger said that, quote, material points consist of, or are nothing but, wave systems, unquote. He considered matter to be only wave groups, which appear as particles in our measuring devices. How does this apply to our chemical electrons? Imagine the electron moving around in a shell around an atom. What we really have to imagine is a wave group. But where is a wave group exactly? And if it's a wave, we need to make sure that the wave doesn't fade away or cancel itself out as it revolves around the nucleus. So all we can say is that the electron occupies a wave group which corresponds to an exact number of waves circling the nucleus. The electron can be literally anywhere in that area, or more exactly, a volume around the nucleus, for we need not restrict ourselves to two dimensions. So now we have a new view of atoms. Electrons are waves of particular wavelengths that move around the nucleus in particular shapes, particular volumes. These shapes will be crucial to understanding better the old notion of chemical affinity, or why some atoms react and others don't, and how chemical bonds work. Let's look a bit further here. German physicists Walter Heitler and Fritz London took this idea of the electron wave and modeled the smallest chemical bonding system in 1927, That of two hydrogen atoms forming a hydrogen molecule, H2. The system is two protons plus two electrons, or four total particles. Technically, they all move around each other based on their electrical attractions, but limited by quantum mechanical levels. Now, any system larger than two particles is impossible to model exactly with equations, whether it's planets in our solar system moons around Jupiter, or electrons around a nucleus. If you make some assumptions, one of which is that the protons are so heavy compared with the electrons that the protons don't move at all, the calculations get easier. From such assumptions and quantum mechanical calculations, they found that there is a state in which the lowest electron level, or energy minimum, occurs when the two protons are 0.074 nanometers, that is billionths of a meter, apart. This is the point of balance between the electrons attracting the protons and the protons repelling each other. Thus, the first success of quantum chemistry came in the late 1920s, modeling the hydrogen molecule based purely on physical principles. Lewis's idea of an electron pair as a bond was shown to be quantum mechanical in nature because the two electrons were of opposite spin quantum numbers that paired up. This method of calculating how electrons on neighboring atoms interact with each other came to be called valence bond theory. Note that as the molecules get larger, the number of particles, nuclei plus electrons, goes up drastically and more and more assumptions and simplifications are needed to make any kind of guess as to how these valence bonds accurately model real-life chemical affinity. If you are interested and have some background in higher mathematics, then you might want to read Gordon Gallup's article called A Short History of Valence Bond Theory from 2002. But the general idea of valence bonding was certainly extended to large molecules and chemical reactions. The American Linus Pauling, a young chemist, began to examine this valence bond idea for improving our understanding of chemical reactions and structures, and published a series of articles starting in 1931 with the title the nature of the chemical bond. Remember that Lewis and Langmuir imagined octets of electrons working in pairs to create bonds. As Asimov notes, quote, electrons paired off in reinforcement, resonating with each other to form a stabler situation in combination than in separation, unquote. This reinforcement of waves in combination came to be called the theory of resonance. Let's go back to Kekulé's structure of benzene. To explain the hexagonal ring structure of six equivalent carbons and the six hydrogens, Kekulé postulated a resonance, a rapid back-and-forth isomerization of benzene between two equivalent forms, with alternating single and double bonds between the carbons. But benzene doesn't show those chemical and physical properties of alternating single and double bonds. Think about carotenoids, real molecules with such alternating bonds. Pauling took the following view. Let's think of benzene as a pooled grouping of electron waves. The alternating single bonds were two electron pools, and the double bonds are four electron pools. If these pools are waves, you can imagine these electron waves smeared throughout the entire molecule. They aren't tiny spheres, and can spread out to cover all the nuclei in the whole molecule with their waves. This explains the benzene structure and properties nicely. There is no flipping between structures. There is only electron waves enveloping entire molecules in a stable way. There isn't really a single bond or double bond between the carbons. There is, one might say, a bond intermediate between the two, say, a one-and-a-half bond, perhaps. This is one contribution to chemical physics that Pauling made. Another point Pauling noted concerned carbon's four tetrahedral bonds Hoff and Lebel proposed a half-century earlier. The four bonds carbon makes are not all of equal energy levels based on their quantum numbers, but they mix and average out to become four equal tetrahedrally spaced bonds. So quantum mechanics explains the tetrahedral carbon. There was a third observation that was finally explained by Pauling dating back to 1900. In that year, Russian-American organic chemist Moses Gomberg, was attempting to synthesize a compound called hexaphenyl ethane. From the name, we can guess that there are six phenyl groups, or benzene rings, attached to the two-carbon molecule ethane. Three benzene rings were supposed to be on each carbon atom. But Gomberg failed. The product he got was a very reactive compound in a colored solution. It turned out to be triphenyl methyl essentially half of the goal of hexaphenylethane. The single carbon had three benzene rings attached, but left one bond unreacted. Instead of the rule of four things attached to carbon, this molecule had only three. How could this be? It appeared a lot like the early 19th century radicals, so Gomberg called it a free radical. Pauling came to the rescue. With electron waves now accepted, he said that the unpaired electron left alone on the carbon atom really wasn't stuck solely to that carbon. Instead, it, like the electrons in a benzene ring, was smeared out over the entire large molecule, stabilizing the unpaired electron to a degree. Pauling's idea was accepted, and Gomberg became known as the founder of free radical chemistry. These free radicals, as you might guess, are generally unstable, but they did appear in many chemical reactions and are difficult to form. Many chemical reactions are slow precisely because free radicals form only unhappily, slowing down the progress of those reactions. But bonding happens in all molecules, not just organic ones. Pauling used this new idea of resonance of smearing out of electron waves over the entire molecule in inorganic molecules as well. One example of an inorganic molecule that had chemists' heads scratching was boron hydride, B2H6. If you try Lewis's electron pair and octet method to draw how the electrons are distributed over the whole boron hydride molecule, You don't have enough electrons to make octets. Pauling said again that we have electron waves smeared out over the entire B2H6 molecule, stabilizing it even though you cannot fulfill the octet rule. Finally, in 1932, Pauling took a look at the so-called inert gases. No known compounds were available at the time, and chemists believed that these elements were unreactive. Pauling noted, however, that perhaps they weren't so unreactive as you might guess, that you could share electrons with other highly reactive elements, particularly fluorine and oxygen. He was dismissed as wrong for 30 years. Then, in 1962, Anglo-American chemist Neil Bartlett reported the reaction of xenon gas with platinum hexafluoride, making the red compound xenon hexafluoroplatinate, the first actual chemical compound containing such elements. Within a short time, the term inert gas was changed to noble gas. Within the past 60 years, a variety of compounds containing all the noble gases have now been synthesized, except for radioactive oganesson, with its extremely short lifetime in milliseconds. Xenon hexafluoride etches quartz and explodes on contact with water to make xenon trioxide. Krypton difluoride is a relatively stable compound, decomposing slowly under room conditions. In our next episode, we look at the first oil wells, hydrocarbons refined from petroleum, and their various uses. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.